We're returning to our series of studies in the book of Colossians. We're considering Colossians chapter 2. And as we approach this particular section of the book, we want to again reflect upon a little of what we spoke about in the last message, which now was several months ago. Uh, We noted in the first seven verses of chapter 2, certain things concerning the life we must exhibit as believers. It was the concern of the Apostle that the people of God would live for Christ as they had professed Christ's name. Look at verse number 6 of chapter 2. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. He goes on to say, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught. Paul had a great care for the Lord's people, and he wanted to see them going on with God. He certainly was a man who had a heart for God's people, because As you look at the first part of chapter 2, we note his great care for them. It's a continuation really from the last verse of chapter 1 where he speaks about laboring and striving according to the Lord's working which he said worketh in me mightily. The word striving and the word conflict in chapter 2 verse 1 come from the same root word in the Greek. It has to do with agonizing or agony. Paul wanted them to know just how much he cared, how deeply he cared for them. And so this is a word for the encouragement of the church. Paul strived in prayer and even in writing and thinking about what to say. That was hard work for him because he cared so much for the Lord's people, most of whom he hadn't even met. There was a wish for their establishment that he expressed. He wanted them to be strengthened against the attacks of false teachers. And he wanted them to be united together in their stand for the truth of God. You see in verse 2 the word that is used, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love. That little phrase, being knit together, you could translate that, welded together. A true pastor wants to see his people being so firm in the truth that they will be able to stand firm for that truth even on their own, even if he were not there. And Paul says in verse 5, For though I be absent in the flesh, I'm not there. I'm not in the church in Colossae. Yet he said, I'm with you in the Spirit. And I'm interested in what's going on there. And I'm rejoicing when I see the order that's there and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. That's an encouragement to me. Paul had a pastor's heart. He cared deeply about the work of God in all the churches. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28, he speaks of that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Amongst those churches was the church of the Colossians. 
He had a great care for them. He had a great concern for them. And especially was he concerned about the false teachers and the false teaching that was about to make inroads into their midst. He was afraid of this. Notice how he mentions in verse 4, as we noted in the Bible reading, the word beguile. Lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. In other words, people who would lead you astray, who would lead you in the wrong direction, who would mislead you by persuasive arguments. Paul was concerned about that. The danger from false teachers. Now it's obvious that they had up to that point been very firm. And he, he, he bears testimony to that. He speaks about verse 5, their steadfastness in their faith. Epaphras had done a great job in teaching them the truth. And so far they'd held the line. But like all purveyors of falsehood, false teachers don't give up. They're persistent. They continue to give trouble. The devil's crowd does not give up in peddling their errors. And so why Paul can testify to their present establishment, he is concerned about the future. He doesn't wait until the damage is done, therefore, but he acts so that the damage will not be done in the future. And this was somewhat prescient on his part. He was saying into the future... Because what happened? Well, if you go to Revelation chapter 3, from verse 14 down to verse 19, you'll see that there was not this paying attention to Paul's warning. Revelation 3 from verse 14, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, obviously, As I said at the beginning, this epistle to the Colossians was also read to the later saints and to those in another church there. That's obvious from Colossians chapter 4 and verse 16. When this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the later saints. So what Paul is writing to them is a warning not just for the Colossians, but for the church at Laodicea. You read Revelation 3 from verse 14, and notice how the Laodicean church had gone astray. What happened? Well, they didn't hold fast to Christ as Paul told them to do. There's the danger from false teachers. Of course, there's the deceitfulness of false teachers that he warned them about. Talking to them about enticing words. Persuasive speech. People who would come with attractive arguments to turn them aside. And there's always the danger that people will be taken in by the sincerity of heretics. Or by their oratory. Or by their nice appearance. Or by their use or misuse rather of scripture. To back up their beliefs. So Paul has a great concern for these believers. And that's followed by his great command to them. What is that command? 
As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, chapter 2, verse 6, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught. I want you to keep on keeping on. Go on with Christ. Having received him as your Savior and your Lord, I want you to continue just as you have begun. You received him by faith. I want you to continue to walk in him by faith. There's to be a going on. That's what the word walk signifies, doesn't it? The walk of the Christian is often used to describe his life. You see those references in Ephesians chapters 4 and 5 to walking. Walking circumspectly. Walking as it becomes the gospel of Christ. Walking in love and so on. Walk in him. Christ is to be the very environment in which you live. And going on, this was something that he commanded them concerning. He also talked about grounding, rooted. Rooted in Christ, like a tree with its roots cast deep down into the earth. This is what Paul desired for these people. And he mentions growth. Built up in him. Chapter 2 verse 7. And again, the Greek tense is an action that is continuous. It's really being built up. This is progressive sanctification. This is growing in the Lord. This is being edified, growing in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. And as well as going on and grounding and growth, Paul's great command to them was with regard to gratefulness. He wanted them to be thankful. Verse 7, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Being fully settled in the truth that they'd been taught. They would know by experience that it was true, and so they would have grateful hearts. I hope you're thankful for the truth. I do trust that you're thankful that you're not under some false teaching. Carried away with some false cult or some weird religion. Because there's plenty of those out there. There's loads of folk who are just ready to run after error and falsehood. Because it sounds good. There's a lot of deception out there. The Lord wants us to make progress in the Christian life. And so there is this life that we must exhibit. Paul refers to this. But from verse 9 to verse 15, the subject moves from the life that we must exhibit as believers to the Lord that we must exalt. The Lord whom we must exalt. And again, this is a statement of orthodox Christian belief regarding the person and work of Christ. Now we've been here before. At the beginning of Colossians, you'll see that Paul launches out in a great description of Christ. In chapter 1, we'll not rehearse all the verses again, but you will see clearly that he speaks of the Savior in verse 15 as the image of the invisible God. He speaks of him in verse 16 as the creator of all things. As the pre-existent Christ, verse 17, he's before all things. 
and the one by whom all things are held together. That's what that means when it says, verse 17 of chapter 1, by him all things consist. And he's the head of the body, the church. He is the one that it has pleased the Father to have all fullness to dwell in. In rejecting and in refuting false doctrine, the heresies of the Gnostics and others who were around at that time, Paul here in chapter 2 issues forth in this doctrinal section of the book a defense of the truth concerning Christ. And I want us to dwell here tonight just on this one verse. It's chapter 2, verse 9. This is one of the high points of the New Testament. This is a mountainous text in a range of mountains. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. This is a Mount Everest text. Concerning the person of Christ. And again, you'll see the Apostle is returning to that theme that he expounded in the first chapter. I've already referenced these verses, we'll not read them again, but chapter 1 verses 15 through 19. In contradiction of the false teachers who were abroad at that time, Paul once again proclaimed and emphasized the truth of his deity. How important it is to hold the very highest views of Christ. And the Apostle Paul did. And he expounded here once more for them in talking about the person of Christ, his deity, his godhood, his divinity. The fact that Jesus Christ is God. Now the divinity and the humanity of Christ are both clearly stated in this text. Notice carefully. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Look at the last two words. Godhead bodily. Now while it is true that the Old Testament, especially in the book of Psalms, refers to the eyes of the Lord, the heavens are the work of His hands and His fingers, and so on. The Bible speaks about the everlasting arms. It speaks about the clouds being the dust of his feet. So you have all these references that would suggest bodily parts. But can I just say to you again that God is pure spirit. God doesn't have a body. God is invisible. Whom no man hath seen nor can see, is how Paul put it to Timothy. And yet we read here what looks like a contradiction. But it's a blessed complementary truth. Godhead bodily, or if you like, you could translate this literally, Godhead in a body. Godhead in a body. What is this? We'll go back in your Bible to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is a little bit like Genesis chapter 1 because it starts out in the beginning 
You want to find out what was in the beginning? In the beginning was the Word. Capital W. In the Greek it's Logos. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Watchtower Society, the Jehovah's Witnesses falsely so called, have made great play of John chapter 1 verse 1 and mistranslating it. Because they can't get their heads around the doctrine of the deity of Christ. They don't believe in it. As far as they're concerned, it's not possible. So therefore they change the text without any justification from the original Greek language. And people who come to you trying to bamboozle you at your door by talking about this verse as if they know all about the Greek language, they know nothing about it. What they know is the lies that were printed and taught by men like Judge Rutherford and men especially like Charles Taze Russell. That's why I refer to them not as Jehovah's Witnesses but as Russellites. And they don't like it. With good cause. Russell was proven in a court of law to know nothing about the Greek language when he was challenged about it. But yet they continue to teach this about a God and all of this nonsense. Look, it is as it is in the English here. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. Words that are reminiscent of Colossians chapter 1. Now go down to verse 14. And it tells you something else about the Word. And the Word was made flesh. In other words, He took flesh into union with His divinity. That's the thought here. It's not that He was transformed into flesh. It's not that He metamorphized into flesh. It's not that the Word became flesh in the sense that He changed from being the Word into being flesh. That's not what it means. When it says, and the Word was made flesh, it means He was manifested in flesh and dwelt. The Word is tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. Just proving what I said a minute ago about the Lord being invisible. But it goes on. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. See, all the fullness of the deity, all the fullness of the Godhead, is found dwelling in a body. When did that happen? At the Incarnation. Christ eternally was God. He is God. He ever will be eternally fully God. The fullness of God is in Him. In Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily or in a body. You know what that means? All that can be said of God can be said of Christ. All that God is, Christ is. Christ is God and nothing less. And that's the great truth that was revealed to Joseph by the angel. 
Quoting from Isaiah chapter 7, he said, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Take the words of Paul to the church at Rome. Romans 9 verse 5. He says of the Lord Jesus, Whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. You know, in some of the perversions of the Bible, they've broken that verse up. And so they'll say, Christ came, who is over all, and then there's a period, and then it'll be something like, God be praised, or God be blessed. And there's no justification for that. They're trying to deny, they are denying the deity of Christ. But I'll read the verse as it is. Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. And we can put our own amen to that. And then you go to Hebrews chapter 1. What a tremendous statement we have there. God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son whom He hath appointed heir of all things by whom also He made the worlds who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down in the right hand of the Majesty on high. And when you come further down that chapter, you see God speaking in verse 8, But unto the Son He saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Yes, the Son is God. Christ is God and nothing less. Look at the text again. In Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now that word fullness, you will see it translated in the next verse, verse 10, as complete. The Greek word is pleroma. It was a word that was used copiously by the Gnostics, those false teachers of that day. The pleroma represented to them the sum of all the qualities of deity. That's how they viewed it, the fullness. But they taught that Christ was only one of many stepping stones leading up to this pleroma, or this fullness. And the Apostle Paul right here is refuting this idea. And he's teaching the Colossians, no, Christ is not just a stepping stone leading up to the fullness, but rather all the divine pleroma, all the divine fullness dwells in Jesus. The very essence of the nature of God in all its entirety dwells in Him. And hence the Lord Himself could say in John chapter 14, in that famous portion, where he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and so on. When you come down to verse 8 and verse 9, Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. That will be enough for us, Lord, if you just show us the Father. Note how Jesus answered. John 14, verse 9. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, 
And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Now let's be clear. Christ is not the Father. However, he reveals the Father. And 2 Corinthians 5.19 supports this. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Or 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. A tremendous statement of the deity of Christ. 1 Timothy 3.16 And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. When did that happen? That happened in the incarnation. All the fullness of the deity dwells in Christ. That is to say, the whole sum and substance of the infinite attributes that belong to deity and constitute deity belong to the Lord Jesus. Someone said to a preacher once, How do you know that Jesus Christ is God? And the preacher simply said, Well, first of all, the Bible says it. But secondly, I know that Jesus Christ is God, but on, because only God could do for me what Jesus Christ has done for me. Some people have taught that this, that Paul is teaching here, only became so after the Lord's exaltation. But this is a great error. It's a very great error. The Lord Jesus Christ not only is, but he ever was God. Let's be clear on that. As the Bible speaks of the eternal Father, and it does, and it speaks of the eternal Spirit, and it does, it also speaks of the eternal Son. It's not that he became God. He is God. And in the incarnation, the eternal Son of God, the one who always was God, took into union with himself a body, flesh. Yes, Mary bore within her body a little baby. My wife and I were having a discussion about this one day recently. Just how marvelous a thing this is. The Lord Jesus Christ was joined to Mary by an umbilical cord. Think about that. I wonder who cut that cord. Was it Joseph? Was it someone else in that stable? Because he was born of natural generation. He was born like other children are born. Just exactly like that. Except that he was conceived in her womb by the Spirit of God. But he had a real humanity. Real humanity. He had a real body. And that little baby was born into that situation there and laid in that manger. And as Mary and Joseph knelt by that manger and worshipped him, and I have no doubt that they did. 
And as those shepherds came in from the field, having been told about the birth of the Son of God, and they knelt beside that manger and worshipped Him, they were looking at God in a body. Quite amazing. So mysterious and yet so true. Unto us a child is born. It was a real child. Unto us a son is given. The mighty God. That's how he's described in Isaiah 9 verse 6. Once again we think of Paul's words in Hebrews chapter 10. These are words that are in the mouth of Christ. Taken from Psalm 40. He says in verse 5, Wherefore when he, come, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. A body. Isn't this an amazing thing? In him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead in a body. The fullness of the Godhead dwelling, or you could say, based on that Greek word, residing or at home in that body. See, Christ is truly the God-man. It's important to emphasize this. He's not God-humanized. And neither is he humanity deified. It's not an exalted man. He's not a man that became a God. But he's God and man in two distinct natures and yet one person forever, as the Catechism so rightly puts it. The Westminster Divines were absolutely spot on with that. Two distinct natures, divinity, humanity, dwelling in the one person of Christ. He is God and man. He's the God-man. And surely that gives added significance to certain texts of Scripture. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 10. By the which will, that's the will of God, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The offering of His body. And again, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, those famous words that we so often quote. It says there, Who his own self bear our sins, where? In his own body, on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. The body of Christ. Isn't that what we think about when we come to communion? We think about that body that was broken for us. These are the words that Christ himself used at the institution of the supper. Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Or this is a symbol, this is a type, this is a sign of my body. This is a representation of my body which is broken for you. That body in which there dwelt the fullness of the Godhead. And so when we think about this, and we need to, 
the statement of Paul in this text, Colossians 2 verse 9, it does away with so many errors. For example, you know there are people who have taught that Christ's deity was separate from his human nature and from his body? That his humanity had a separate existence? And it has to be emphasized, that body and that blood which purchased our redemption did so, because as one preacher put it, because deity dwelt in them as in the whole human nature of Christ. And let me repeat that. That body and blood which purchased our redemption did so because deity dwelt in them as in the whole human nature of Christ. It's not wrong to say God in a body. In fact, it's absolutely right to say so. And this is a profound truth. It is a great and an unfathomable mystery And yet it is a revealed truth of God. Two things I could really say about this truth concerning the person of Christ and his deity. This God dwelling in a body is a very exalted truth. You could say it's well above our pay grade to understand this. It's well beyond our finite understanding. And that's why it cannot really be explained But it is a truth to be accepted and believed. God dwelt in a human body. It is nevertheless not only an exalted truth, it is an encouraging truth. You know why? Because the redemption wrought out in that body cannot fail. It can't fail. Why? Because it was wrought out by God in a body on the tree at Calvary. By God in a body appearing as man. I look at this text. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Paul is speaking here to the elders at Ephesus. And he makes this statement. Acts 20, 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves. That's always important for ministers and elders to do. Look at themselves first. But take heed to all the flock. You are a shepherd. You're an under-shepherd. You're to take heed to yourselves, but you're to take heed to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers or bishops, if you like. Now notice this statement. To feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Sometimes people get involved, especially in theological circles, in semantics. You know that hymn, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? There's a line in there which says, That thou my God shouldst die for me. And I had a man one time take issue with that with me. And I remember well him leaning over to me when we were singing that hymn. He says, God's not dead, is he? God's not dead, is he? And I just looked at him. I wonder what he was talking about. Well, 
To him it was wrong to sing that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. But I believe he was involving himself in semantics. Splitting hairs over words. Because while it is true that strictly speaking God cannot die, because he is God, yet God took into union with himself our humanity in order that he could, as the God-man, die for our sins. And so we can say about Jesus Christ, he's God, right? Jesus Christ is God. Who died on the cross for us? Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. Who died on the cross for us? No, God didn't die, but the one who is God died, right? There's the answer. The one who is God died for us upon the cross. And so when Acts 20 verse 28 speaks in this way, that the church of God has been purchased with his own blood, we can take it as it is read. God as pure spirit doesn't have blood. But he took into union with his divinity, our humanity, and shed his blood for our redemption. So there is a sense in which it's not wrong to speak about the blood of God being shed for us. The blood of one who is God, that is to say. He who came from God as God and died on a cross as a man has returned to God and eternally is God. And yet it's true still at this moment, at this very moment, right now, that in Him there dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead in a body. You see, that same body in which He was crucified and laid in the tomb and rose from the dead, though that body was fit for heaven, fit for glory, yet it's the same body. And I agree with the hymn writer when he says five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. You know the vision that appears in heaven of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 5? How does that Lamb appear? Well, look at it. Revelation 5. And verse number 6. Here's a heavenly vision. Here's somebody being granted access to glory. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, this is the church of Jesus Christ, stood a lamb as it had been slain. So here's a lamb that is alive because he's a standing lamb. But how does he appear? As a lamb that had been slain. A lamb that's had its blood shed. I'm not sure about all that that entails. But surely when the Lord Jesus was raised and appeared to the disciples in the upper room after the resurrection and told them to reach forth their finger and to see the print of the nails in his hands and thrust your hand into my side and see 
Surely they weren't looking at some sort of a vision or an apparition. This is reality. And when he went up into heaven from the Mount Olivet in Acts chapter 1, you know what the angel said? This same Jesus shall so come as you have seen him go into heaven. Who was that Jesus? That's the Jesus who rose with the marks of shame on his body. Is it too much for me to believe that through the endless ages of eternity I will look upon the Lamb who was slain and I'll see there those marks of shame on that body? In him there dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In that same body, now glorified, deity has permanent residence. But we can say at the same time, there's a man in the glory. There's a man in the glory. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. These are encouraging words, aren't they, when it comes to the matter of prayer. Hebrews 4 from verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have a mediator. We have one who is God, but he's also man. He can touch God and he can touch man and bring them together as the great umpire. The Apostle Paul emphasizes this truth of his deity. But he also emphasizes this truth of his authority. And we don't have a lot of time to deal with this tonight because I want to return to this when we're speaking of the position of the Christian. But in verse 10, Colossians 2 puts it like this, And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and Power. Look at chapter 1 verse 16. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Christ is the head of all rule and authority. His is an authoritative reign, or if you like, a reigning authority. He's the king. As the head, it has rightly been said that God-man is infinitely above all created powers. They're in the hollow of his hand. Aren't you glad the Lord is in control? Far above all is our Savior enthroned. Far above all principalities and powers and every might and dominion. In Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said, All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. It means all authority. And so when we think about the principalities and the powers, chapter 2, verse 15 mentions them, having spoiled 
principalities and powers. These relate to different ranks of spiritual beings. The Gnostics, whom I have mentioned, who were very active in the city of Corinth, and also active in Colossae, they claimed to know all about the nature and the offices of these glorious intelligences. And they placed these high above Christ himself. The Lord Jesus was well down the pecking order as far as they were concerned. And yet the Bible teaches, and Paul emphasizes this, that Christ created all things. He has all authority. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He has authority over all angels, and over all men. And he's the head of all angelic companies, as well as all human beings. Christ is preeminent. He's high over all. God blessed forever. And we need to always entertain, as I said earlier, only the highest views of Christ. Anything that brings the Savior down in men's estimation, you can be absolutely certain it's from the pit. Anything that militates against the doctrine of his deity or in any way lessens him, it's not of God. What think you of Christ is the test? To try both your state and your scheme, you cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. Paul wanted the Colossians to think rightly of Christ. And may we take on board these things that are spoken. May we rejoice in the fact that in him, in Christ, there dwells, there is at home, all the fullness of the Godhead in his body. Just like Thomas, by faith we fall down at his feet tonight and we say, My Lord and my God. May the Lord help us, along with the angels of God, to worship him. Amen.